0: Hello, I'm Beth Fateni, the director of the New York based nonprofit Green Inside and Out, and host of the Green Inside and Out podcast, where we cover environmental topics to keep you informed, inspired, and empowered to take action.
1: This podcast is made possible by our awesome eco friendly sponsors
0: inspiration, positivity, holistic health, personal and spiritual growth. Know anyone that could use some? Creations Magazine has been inspiring the soul for 34 years. Each issue offers articles and poetry featuring seasonally related topics, including nutrition, relationships, yoga, meditation and introspection, men's and women's issues, and the environment. Visit creationsmagazine.com every week for new articles and for advertising and submissions. And Green Inside and Out, thanks, Creations Magazine, for being a great partner and sponsor of this podcast. So I am pleased to introduce our guest for today, Michelle Roos. Michelle Roos has served as the Executive Director of the Environmental Protection Network since July 2018 and served as EPN's Deputy Director for seven months prior to this appointment. She has over 20 years of experience in project management and environmental protection, She has directed high-level projects, organized conferences and work groups, and spearheaded major environmental initiatives. Ms. Roos is also an EPA alum, that's the Environmental Protection Agency. At EPA, she co-founded and co-managed the West Coast Collaborative, a public-private partnership that implements projects to reduce emissions from diesel engines along the West Coast, Alaska, and the American Pacific Islands. She also led a national work group to better incorporate environmental justice into the federal environmental permitting process. Previously, she served as the Special Assistant to the Regional Administrator of Region 9 in San Francisco, as the Special Assistant to the Assistant Administrator of the Office of Air and Radiation in Washington, D.C. Ms. Roos was also Presidential Management intern. After she left the EPA in 2006, Miss Roos worked as the independent environmental consultant for a variety of clients, including E4 Strategic Solutions, His Royal Highness, the Prince of Wales, that's pretty cool, and Ecomedia, love them too. Prior to working at EPA, she worked for the Texas Natural Resource Conservation Commission and spent a summer at the White House Council on environmental quality. Ms. Roos has a Bachelor of Science in Engineering from Duke University, and a Master in Public Affairs from Princeton University. She lives in New York. Very impressive. So happy to have you here today with me. I found the Environmental Protection Network online and so happy I did. Welcome, Michelle, to be on our show.
1: Thank you so much.
0: <laughs> so like I said, I found the Environmental Protection Network um, online one day and I said, oh, what is this? This looks really fascinating. So. Um, Tell us what is the the EPN, as it's called, and why it was founded.
1: Sure. Um, The Environmental Protection Network uh, is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that comprises almost 550 EPA alumni, both career staff as well as former political staff from both Republican and Democratic administrations. We were formed in January 2017 in response to the campaign promises made by Donald Trump that he was going to eviscerate the Environmental Protection Agency and roll back many of the exceptional amounts of progress that were made um, over many decades. Um, our members, about at that point, um, you know, at, at our inception there were about two dozen folks that met in a living room in washington dc again these folks included all those uh categories of people that i just mentioned they met and said well we don't know what this administration is going to look like but we need to be ready to respond and so they formed um as i mentioned in january a few months later the first um proposed budget coming out of this administration was revealed, and it was revealed a 30% cut in EPA's budget. And we realized that we had a role to play. We needed to explain, well, what does that mean to cut your major environmental protection and public health agency by a third? What are those implications? How does that impact drinking water? How does that impact clean air? Um, and so, and so we were founded in a real way and we began to do things. Um, our work right now falls under four categories. First and foremost, we continue that budget work every single year. The Trump administration has proposed monstrous cuts to the agency. We fought, we do a deep dive analysis into the budget. We share that information with other nonprofit organizations and folks on the Hill, and we follow. The process through the appropriations, doing an analysis throughout. Um, the second thing that we do is we follow proposed and now you know at this point later in the administration finalized um, rulemakings. Um, so if they are proposing a new way to um, to regulate power plants, uh, we look at that and we again we gather the right experts that we have in our network to do a deep dive analysis. We submit those comments to the formal rulemaking process that EPA oversees, but we also share that information. So that sharing is really actually our third objective. So we share everything in draft. We share our our membership um, as individuals, as well as any of our written materials with reporters, with congressional staffers and members um, and other nonprofit organizations, because we, have a big volunteer network with tremendous expertise. I mean, these are the economists, the scientists, the lawyers that ran EPA for decades. Um, but we have a relatively tiny megaphone and we, have to, and, and we are a temporary construct. So we pass our information on um, to people that have great influence to decision makers. Um, number four, the fourth major objective, um, we just started about a year and a half ago and launched in August which was re-recognized when we were leaving the breadcrumbs, right? For somebody to follow, to build, you know, what Biden, the Biden administration calls build back better. We're nonpartisan slash bipartisan, so we don't use that language. But that concept um, was very real to us. We knew that if there was going to be a new administration, Republican or Democrat, it would need to what we call reset the course of EPA. That means not only to deal with the damage done during the Trump administration, but also to deal with longer-term systemic issues within the agency, such as environmental justice. Definitely the agency has made great progress, but this concept that we would incorporate environmental justice in every aspect of the agency's work, the agency has not lived up to that. And that's something that the agency has never fully lived up to. So we wanted to address those issues, um, the kind of the siloing, of issues, you know, there's an office of air, there's an office of water. Like the two need to obviously work together more. So there was there were systemic issues that we thought, you know, also need to be addressed. So we put forth these recommendations, which um, in final form looked like 17 really detailed papers on day one, and 100 day activities for the new administration to take to um, to build this back. Again, we wrote those in a very nonpartisan way. Meaning we saw something that was unique about this iteration of the Trump administration, um, which seemed to not care about public health and the environment. And we thought, well, should there be a change of heart within this? Should there be a new Republican in charge or a Democrat in charge? We knew that if somebody really wanted to do good, they would need to um, make some major changes in the agency and address uh, the damage done by the Trump administration. That was a very long-winded answer to explain um, what EPN does and who our members are, but I hope it gives you a a bit of a feel.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I I love it. I really appreciate the fact that it's, you know, bipartisan, I think um, people in this country are really seeking that sort of effort, um, you know, and gathering all the expertise from people who have worked within the agency. It's it's really an incredible effort. And I know that, You know, towards the end of last year when we were heading towards the election, at least for this show, um, I put together a list of at least some of the environmental laws that were changing um, under the Trump administration. Again, I try to be nonpartisan myself, but it was just quite obvious that there was, uh, you know, not a lot of caring about the environment at that time. So we did a blog post and things like that. And there were so, so many issues that were being affected, you know, energy, water, endangered species, parks, everything. So um, I was curious in terms of EPN, your your Environmental Protection Network, what are some of the specific issues your, your volunteers have been engaged in over the last four years?
1: Right. Yeah, I think it was... The New York Times has identified over 100 different specific yep. rollbacks, right, coming under this administration. We didn't track every single one of those, but we tracked many of them and submitted formal comments um, on, on, on many. So in in air, for example, um, I know that's an issue that a lot of people are concerned about, not only because of its connection to climate change, but because of its connection to asthma and, um, and that correlation we see right now with um, long-term exposure to air pollution and uh, correlating with increased mortality from COVID. So air quality is very, very important. So we saw a lot of different um, actions coming out of this administration that our volunteers were intimately involved in, including um, the Clean Power Plan Replacement Rule, uh, ACE. Uh, which um, proposed to regulate power plants in a far less effective and stringent manner than is needed. Um, We saw a lot of uh, work um, that needed done to dismantle um, the scientific integrity process. Um, So we saw that both uh, specifically in air, for example, Particulate matter, so that's the driver I was just referencing asthma. Particulate matter, tiny, tiny particles that get into the lungs and cause increased asthma attacks, increased heart attacks, increased mortality, missed work days, missed school days. It's very, very tied to public health and tremendous um, costs to public health. The very beginning of this administration, um, they dismantled the a scientific panel that looks at those, the particulate matter and establishes, this, um, helps to establish the standards. Uh, they, the same thing happened in ozone. Um, so our members um, were a part of not only speaking out very vocally about that and in protest of that, but then they did something really beautiful with the Union of Concerned Scientists and some of the former members of that particulate matter panel, which is they met anyway. So many of our members and all of the scientific experts from all over the country gathered, um, a, I guess a little over a year ago and did a deep dive analysis and submitted formal comments to EPA on the particulate matter standards that they were considering. It was amazing. And when you think about kind of like that level of academic um, excellence folks that really don't get involved in politics, they would just did it because it was the right Thing to do. Um, and our members both facilitated that meeting and provided the kind of support that EPA would normally provide. Um, so those are a couple of the issues. The other issue in air um, I think is really significant are vehicle emissions standards, um, particularly with greenhouse gas emission standards. So those were for by and large frozen. And what's really sad about that work is um, these were standards that were agreed upon nationally by a huge diversity of stakeholders, engine manufacturers, car companies, oil companies. Like this was not this was this was a big win in the Obama administration and um, the Trump administration decided to roll that back. They've also prevented California from establishing its own standards. Um, so our members are very active on those issues. Um, a couple of others really quickly. Um, EPA is just engaged in an analysis of um, toxic chemicals and trying to establish, well, what and determine what are the pathways of exposure and how much do these chemicals need to be, how dangerous are these chemicals and how much they need to be regulated. Um, Many of the chemicals we've never heard of, um, but they do include things like um, TCE, which is something we have heard of, or asbestos. Um, So very, very dangerous chemicals. And... um, our members felt that the process, the analysis where it was was not thorough, it was not done well, it was not ordered correctly, meaning the agency would come out with information um, and then not wait to get all their comments before finalizing. Um, they have their own scientific panels that participate in those processes, and they didn't allow enough time to get all the information forward to those panels and then from those panels. So it's a very corrupt process and um, we'll need, you know. We'll get to that later, I guess, but will need to be re-examined. Um, and then I think, lastly, um, drinking water. We just saw a finalization of the lead and copper rule, um, which um, our members were very involved in drinking water. We saw with Flint, um, you know, the important thing to say, Flint was not an anomaly, meaning many water infrastructure systems across the country are very vulnerable to contamination, and we do need to protect um, our citizens and our, you know, in particular, our children from lead contamination. Um, so that's just like a sampling. I mean, we worked for four years. We put forth, I think, over 100 different sets of formal comments on different rule makings. Um, I will just take a moment to say that um, I kept saying, you know, we and our members, that's that's an important, unique aspect. All of this substantive work was done by volunteers and volunteers that did this work for their entire careers at EPA um so they come at it as tremendous experts and then oftentimes they'd say okay well that's interesting that they proposed this because when i wrote the regulation in 1985 and then we revised it in 92 and then we did that so they know the whole history and they understand the deep implications and if a you know a phrase is changed here or wording is done here they understand it's it they don't miss anything um so it was really i think the ngo community the hill um, and reporters really, really appreciated that depth of knowledge that you don't that you don't always have access to. Um.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That is just amazing and fantastic. I'm so glad to hear that, you know, all of these things are things that we work on here on Long Island, you know, through Green Inside and Out and many other organizations on toxins and water and air, you know, all of those things. So it really affects the you know individual person. So I thank everyone for everyone you've been working with <laughs> for doing this. So certainly it must have been, there were some pretty worrisome activities that were undertaken by the Trump administration. So what were some of the key highlights of those that you want to mention?
1: Sure. Yeah, I, I do also feel lucky, by the way, during this administration to be working with my mentors from when I was at EPA and new people that I kind of knew of in like our geeky wonky environmental world. These are kind of stars and, um, to get to work with them and learn from them and, um, be a part of active, active resistance was, was really, uh, a gift for me personally. Why I didn't spend four years banging my head against the wall. I spent four years really fighting this, um, and with all these uh, tremendous experts. I think two things um, that still remain to be fully deconstructed, I will tell you just a few days ago, maybe even yesterday, I mean, it's like drinking out of a fire hose here, but um, I think it was just yesterday, EPA finalized um, what we refer to as the censored science rule. Uh, They call it, you know, strengthening transparency in science or something like that. But the gist of it is to restrict the use of certain scientific studies in the EPA rulemaking process because they were not transparent enough, meaning the names of the individuals that were included in the study, like the people that were exposed, they weren't a part of the public record. So things that like you would never make public um, in the past, we're still trying to figure out the final just came out. I don't know at this juncture if it was as bad as previous versions were. Thousands and thousands of people and organizations commented on two different proposals coming out of the agency. I think the final rule is much more limited than the proposal, but still it speaks to, and I think the PM panel is another example of, of trying to take science out, out of the process. You know, we're, What is the phrase? Like we're all entitled to our own opinions, but not our own facts. If you cannot make sound public policy that protects all of us, and in particular protects our most vulnerable in our society, whether they're vulnerable because of existing health conditions that are often correlated with um, low income or minority communities, like there are so many people, um, that we need to protect that the government needs to protect. And if you remove science and you just go with your gut or what business says, um, that's a very that's very poor governance. Um, so the science rulemaking whole process and the chaos it caused was a nightmare to be determined how bad the actual final rule was and also how quickly um, a future administration could reverse it. On that same note, the attacks on cost-benefit analysis were also very significant, meaning what could you count as a cost and what could you count as a benefit? Something that I, I remember reading about in school but didn't really fully appreciate till I was working at EPA. Every significant rulemaking, you need to show how the costs to industry are smaller than the benefits to society. And if you mess with that process, if you say, "Well, these benefits aren't real benefits, like they're co-benefits," or like you can't count this, like like what they were threatening to do with censored science, you know, oh, this isn't fully transparent. If you if you try to limit that benefit side. then then it's not going to sh- you're not going to be able to pass um the rules that need to be passed. So I think those were actually the some of the most worrisome and also maybe the hardest for the general public to understand. Yeah. Um so they felt very below the board um the whole time and and not the way that debate in any other administration um really operated.
0: Yep. I have to do cost-benefit analysis for my, my own day job because I work for New York State on clean energy. And um, it's very critical. I mean, those are the that's the basis of how we make decisions on whether to move forward with certain projects. So definitely don't want to mess with that. I mean, for the life of me, I don't understand how environmental things can be um, politicized, you know, because it affects all of us. We all drink the water. We all breathe the air. Um, so it's just amazing. But but again, thank you for all this this work. So, so I know you mentioned earlier um, the resetting the course of EPA. So tell us a little more about what motivated the Environmental Protection Network to do that resetting the course of EPA project and how you came up with your recommendations.
1: Sure. I mean, as I mentioned earlier, you know, we were drinking out of a fire hose and we still are. You know, every day there was a different attack. And, and, and we felt the need to respond and, and put our experts on that t- to the best of our ability. Um, so it was a very hard decision to decide to look proactively, both because we didn't know if there would ever be an audience, right? We hoped there would be an audience in the sense that the Trump administration would change their, their tune on this or that there would be a new Republican or a new Democrat, but we did not know. And so it was really hard and we had to do a lot of thinking within our volunteer network. Hey, guys, you know how you're volunteering 20, 30, 40 hours a week for us? Would you want to volunteer more? Do you want to do this other thing in addition? Like, will it slow us down? Will it get in the way? Is it going to be, a? let's say there is an audience, will they actually listen to us? Will we be effective? So we did, a, we did some really careful thinking and we spoke to lots of folks um, and we decided we got it. We had to do it. Um, And our members really stepped up like they have every single step, you know, in every moment um, in our organization's history. Um, We ended up forming 17 different work groups, each having, you know, four to 10 members. Those groups met over many months, wrote recommendations, and then we reached out to over 100 external organizations to share our initial thoughts, you know, so we could say, hey, you know, mainstream environmental group, what do you think about this recommendation? Or, you know, oh, this regulatory body that works with states on water, like, what do you think about that? So we really wanted to ground truth our ideas and make sure we were heading in the right direction. I think that served us a fewfold. fold. Um, you know, having over 100 of our members involved in writing the recommendations, ground truthing them with 100 plus external organizations we achieved something that we like to call surround sound, meaning these ideas and thinking about this became a part of a fabric of what a lot of people were talking about. You know, EPN was was founded to be a temporary construct in this moment in US history where we needed, to, we needed it to be here. Um, so we didn't need our recommendations to be labeled as EPN. But seeing those recommendations in transition documents for other organizations, seeing them, you know, as a part of campaigns, seeing them as a part of what the new administration is speaking out on is really rewarding um, and shows, um, you know, and, and I think reflects that we got an early start on this, that we were really, really thoughtful and practical about what we were, like bold and practical, I think was often the balance, right? It has to be big because we've got big challenges, but it can't be pie in the sky that can never be achieved. It really has to be within the realms of what is legal, what is possible, um, you know, what, 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 we're, what the agency will be capable of doing um, to move forward. So that's a bit of a background on kind of what motivated us um, and, and how we came up with our recommendations.
0: And so what were some of the core themes of resetting the course of EPA?
1: Right. Um, so this seems very basic, but a big, it, you know, EPA has to reaffirm its commitment to fully protect public health and the environment. Like That switch has to happen. Um, EPA has lost a lot of respect in the community, just like the United States has lost a lot of respect internationally. That, that commitment needs to come back, that back to basics, that back to mission, um, that came across uh, loud and clear throughout um, that. And this reflects what I mentioned earlier, that scientific and economic analysis has to be free from political interference. You know, you might have a political agenda and but you can't you can't take that agenda and and only take the fact, you know, only take a subset of information that supports that agenda. You have to be smart and you have to do good governance, which comes with looking at the facts. Um incorporating environmental justice in every aspect of EPA's work is critical. It's not only critical because we've seen recently um, there's a different awareness of systemic racism. There's a different awareness of inequality than maybe at other points in history. But in the environmental movement, and I'm sure you know this from your work, it has been very clear um, how there is a disproportionate environmental impact on low-income communities communities of color and indigenous populations that's something we've known for decades and it is very pervasive and the agency has made tremendous progress in a lot of ways but needs to do more and we saw that in our water recommendations and our air recommendations and our superfund recommendations like that lens of thinking about the most vulnerable in the population um, has to be used Um, We also um, definitely weighted heavily um, actions that would have big benefits to the greatest number of people, including vulnerable populations. So a need to address the most significant and pervasive public health risks to get, you know, the biggest bang for your buck to get great benefits um, early on. We also talked about, and I'm sure you could appreciate this with your work at the state, um, that EPA has to collaborate with states, tribes, local governments, and other federal agencies. It just won't work. Um, That collaborative approach is really important and has to be expanded um, as much as possible with the private and nonprofit sectors as well. EPA can't do this alone and has to come up with solutions um, that many people are behind in order for it to be effective. Um, and then lastly, you know, public trust, right? Demonstrating the best ethical behavior, the most um, transparency in terms of including you know, as much science as possible and providing objective environmental information. Um, the public won't stand uh, for anything less and the agency needs to step up and provide um, that in order to be effective.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and you know, I know that takes funding. Um, You mentioned earlier concerns about the funding. So, currently, I'm curious where things stand. Is EPA sufficiently funded, and and what do you think it will take to give the agency the money it needs to fulfill its mission as the Biden, you know, administration transitions
1: in? Right. It's really it's a hard question. So, what has happened though that? Um, proposed president's budget always came in the cut by a third. Um, Congress um, built the budget back up in the appropriations process and EPA by and large ended up with the same budget it had had at the end of the Obama administration. The problem is when you adjust for inflation, the budget is the same. It's is not ever been this low since the Reagan administration. So there has been a real withering away of EPA's budget with respect to other investments in the federal government. And it is a problem. Um, we recommend a four year aggressive strategy to build the budget back up that will take tremendous amount of um, political willpower and will not be easy. I think um, as we, have, you know, I, I think that what appears to be at this point, I know this will air a little later, but um, if the Democrats are controlling the Senate, the House and the presidency, that does provide a platform, but... There are so many needs across the federal government, and it is a very difficult balancing act to decide what you prioritize and what you don't. I will say this, EPA's budget compared to other federal agencies is very small. (laughs) So a relatively modest increase at EPA makes for a very significant greater ability um, to do its job. And if the administration, this incoming administration is serious about climate change and environmental justice, that will, as you mentioned, take money.
0: Yeah, I, I hope so. We're we're waiting to see <laughs> many people are. So, what would you say are the priority actions for day 1 or um, you know, or 100 day activities that the Environmental Protection Network recommends that the new administration take?
1: Sure. Well, there are so many, right? We wrote 17 papers and in each one we have I think I think the theme across Um, is very first and foremost, um, a series of announcements stating what the intention is going to be. Federal rulemaking is lengthy. It's a lengthy, lengthy process. Um, And so an intention stating, well, we have looked at what happened under Trump, and this is our plan, will be very important. So here's the rules that we're going to actively roll back from the Trump administration. Here are the rules they're gonna put on pause and here are rules that we're just gonna move forward from. So I my background is in air pollution and in mobile sources. Um, the way that mobile sources are regulated is years in advance, right? So this fleet coming forward, here are the standards of that fleet. Uh, a reasonable, um, recommendation that, again, the administration may choose to not, you know, follow is to ignore the rollbacks and the freezes that kind of happen here to definitely emphasize, um you know, the California waiver and getting enabling California and other states to um, move ahead of federal government. But in terms of the engine standards themselves to move forward, we need to move towards electrification. Um, so I think those kinds of things to say, you know, uh, looking at these various robots, where are we gonna stand on each one um, is going to be very important. Um, I also think that a um, investment into things that have been historically problematic. So non-point sources of um, water pollution are very, very significant and very challenging to regulate. It is far easy to put a control on a smokestack or out, out of a pipe. But when it's rolling down the hills, when it ends up in the, you know, mixed with the stormwater, when it when these these um, persistent chemicals, PFAS and others end up in our system, you know, how are we going to deal with this? I think fertilizers
0: um, and things like
1: that. Right. So non-point sources and and these these kind of these new and emerging chemicals, like there needs to be a real deep commitment in investing because this isn't what the regs were set up to deal with. Um, and so real clear indications, and I apologize, I kind of mix those together, but we'll separate them, the non-point sources and the new and emerging chemicals, um, big actions on um, both of those, because that's that's also where the rubber hits the road. That's where people see it. Um, you know, if your local water um, system is contaminated by these chemicals that come from, you know, nonstick pans and food packaging waste, you um, that's, that's our kids that are, you know, drinking that up um, and consuming, you know, products that are wrapped in it. Like we we have to, the government will have to look holistically at why these chemicals are being used, if there are safer alternatives, how do you dispose of them um, and how do you clean things up? Um, so I think those are some of the day one and hundred day activities that would, that set a different tone, set a lot of intention and then, and then push through. I will also just mention that So far, the Biden administration is sending those really strong signals um, with the political appointees that they have announced thus far. Um, And the fact that you see experts in climate and environment not only at kind of your typical um, agencies, you know, DOE, DOT, uh, EPA, um, you see them in other agencies as well as um, in many of the White House um, picks. So those are good signals. That uh, they're taking it seriously.
0: It's been encouraging to see the diversity of the group that's been chosen to lead these agencies, and um, you know I wanted to comment too here on Long Island. We do have an issue with, first of all, fertilizer, of course, especially in Suffolk County where this radio station is taking, uh, it, you know, resides, um, and with PFAS and PFOA, they're um, fire retardant chemicals that have been used in in firefighting foam, and we have it here on Long Island, so certainly all these things that we're working on at the state level, but would be great to have national leadership as well. So, um, you know, I was wondering about what you were saying about how the new administration can address the the prior actions. So it's not like the new administration can just come in and reverse the actions taken under the Trump administration. It's going to take some work from what you're right. saying.
1: Definitely. And it depends on what the action was and at what stage of the game it's in. Um, So if it's an executive order, those can just be reversed or superseded. So that that's a relatively easy fix. If there is a final rule in effect, uh, you can't do much about it except for to propose a new rule that could supersede it. And like I mentioned, that is that is many years um, in the making Uh, final rules in litigation. So let's say there's a final rule and people have sued on it. Um, The agency can stop defending it, uh, but they then still need to go through, um, there there will need to be a court decision on that. And depending on that court decision, they may may or may not need to go through a a, uh, rulemaking process. Definitely if they stop defending it, and the rule is deemed uh, inappropriate, illegal, whatever, um, not valid, and doesn't go into effect, then you could see, you know, things going back um, pretty quickly. But again, the legal, pro- you know, the court process also doesn't take um, no time. It takes some time. Regulations in process, which means that if a rule is proposed, but not final, that can just stop. That, that can just go away. Um, we actually are watching carefully. There are rules that have been finalized, but not, um, the final language has been put out there, but it hasn't been signed or it hasn't been put in the federal register. I think that's going to be very interesting to see exactly how that pans out. Um, some of those, if they don't meet the right criteria can just be removed. They were not, um, finalized. Um, and so that's like just some of the samples. So they're that's, a fascinating process that the new administration will need to go through to really figure out, okay, what stage is everything in? And then, as I mentioned earlier, from those that it's not clear that it can just go away, how are you going to prioritize? Because if you spend, if the new administration spends all of, if they say, well, let's first roll back all the rollbacks, let's reverse everything that happened to Trump, well, that's going to take four years. So... (laughs) And then you will have done nothing else. So you can't do that. You do have to prioritize. You do need to think big picture. You do need to say, well, it's a different world than we're living in now than we did the last day of the Obama administration and the first day of the Obama administration. So we can can jump from the point that we're at right now. We don't have to go back um, and make it kind of like in the vindictive strategy that I think you know, underlied most of um, the attacks, many of the attacks, not, I don't know most, but many of the attacks on EPA. Um, that's not a smart way to govern. Um, a smart way is to think, okay, well, these are all the options. And and where are we going to, to put our energy to, to give us the potential of the greatest um, positive impact?
0: Yeah, so I just have to ask, um, slightly unscripted, but, you know, I imagine since I know Mr. Trump likes to tweet I was wondering if you you ever your group ever received any sort of negative feedback from people within the administration that were aware of what you've been working on.
1: Sure, that's a great question. Um it has happened um and I think our members wore it as a as a badge of honor um to when we um, finalized our recommendations for the new administration uh, and an Associated Press article came out. Um, and then the, uh, the administrator of EPA Wheeler said, well, I wouldn't listen to these folks. Like they didn't, they didn't fix anything kind of thing. And then Governor Whitman said, step back. Like, because <laughs> obviously these are not direct quotes, you know, hold on a second. Like, don't attack us, like commit yourself to doing the work. That needs um, to get done, and I think when you have, you know, the administrator of EPA and a Republican administration attacking Governor Whitman, um,
0: New Jersey, Christy Todd Whitman, who used to run the EPA, for our listeners,
1: yes, exactly, right. She was the administrator of EPA um, during the George W. Bush administration. You know, when you see that, you know you've gone off course. (laughs) Like there's something really um, very seriously wrong um, with that. So. We've seen that, we've seen, you know, other other kinds of attacks. We've not been in a Trump tweet, um, but um, I, I'm okay with that as well. Um,
0: <laughs> there's still time, there's still time. Oh, so
1: let's not wish it on ourselves.
0: You know, I, I definitely care about um, environmental justice concerns, especially given all of the, um, you know, racial discord we've been seeing in the country uh, as of late, unfortunately. So what are your thoughts on how the new administration can best pay attention to addressing environmental justice concerns in underserved communities? We certainly have some here on Long Island.
1: Yes, absolutely. I mean, there's so much work to be done, and we could spend a whole hour talking about this. I'll just hmm. hit the the kind of the highlights is you need to direct every EPA program office to incorporate EJ in all significant actions and make EPA's workforce accountable for doing so. So a, pl- um, a, a, a plus or a minus of working for the federal government is um, you have annual reviews. Um, you are you are evaluated based on specific criteria that determine whether you get a raise, whether you move up, whether you're eligible to apply for um, more management-heavy jobs. Um, that needs to be in everyone's um, performance goals, uh, how do you know, to incorporate EJ into what you're doing, whether it's giving grants, um, or, uh, you know, uh, writing rules. Um, so that needs to be, everybody's got to be accountable in a real tangible way. Um, more, we talked about this before, more money, more, more money, um, needs to go to directly to communities. A lot of times, um, municipalities would receive money. A lot of times the grants are very small. A lot of times the grants are one year and never again. Like there needs to be a real deep investment into getting money to communities because communities know the solutions to their problems. They've been fighting them for decades. They are very intimately aware of the drivers of risk and they need to be empowered to fight for those um, things and build their capacity um, to defend themselves. there's a lot of legal and policy foundations that support environmental justice that have been underutilized in this administration. Those need to be enhanced and revitalized and just plain old used. I think another uh, issue that again, over many, many administrations, um, Title VI of the Civil Rights Act, which prohibits discrimination based on race, color, national origin, um, That needs to be expanded and reinvigorated. Um, I was actually just talking to an environmental justice group the other day, and they're saying, Well, we've all but given up on our Title VI complaints that we made decades ago and nothing really happened. Um, That's a really powerful tool. I think we're seeing it um, used more effectively uh, fairly recently. And if the agency can recognize and learn um, more, you know, how to effectively um, use that um, enforcement, right? I think. I think we, we'd see a lot more progress. Um, lastly, um, the investment in communities needs to be big. Our organization actually um, perm- recommends to create something, we, we would call it the Community Pollution Reduction Program, CPR program. Um, but it's basically to, to invest money and take actions responding to express needs of the community. Meaning you can look at a lot of data, a lot of information, okay, there's highway pollution, okay, there's this smokestack, okay, we got to sit down with the community um, in that prioritization process, um, give them the funding and um, the mechanisms to help them make that decision and then help them see it through. Um, I think that is also a big part of what we've seen with the racial justice and equity movement um, is empowerment of people to um, determine their futures um, and I think the environmental protections can follow that that same lead.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And here in New York State, um, we adopted the CLCPA, it's the Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act, always hard mm-hmm. to remember, um, you know, to help really invest more in, in climate change, you know, reduction. Um, and it's been a big priority here in New York State for sure, so. Um, You know, I recall even a few years ago under the Obama administration, there were ARA grants. Uh, It was the American Recovery Something Act, I forget. And um, we were able to use a lot of those funds for energy efficiency in homes, Mm -hmm. which did go to communities in need. So it was, you know, it really does make a big difference. And um, of course, we have to close soon. But my last question is, I, I wanted to hear what you had to say about what you think the new administration can take can take on in terms of bold actions on climate change. That's something a lot of our listeners are interested in.
1: Right. So I will use this opportunity to promote another effort that is not an EPN effort, but a really valuable um, effort called Climate 21. So it's climate21.org. And this was a bunch of folks, uh, many of whom worked under the Obama administration that recognized that a new administration would be facing climate and would need to take an all of government approach, meaning it's not EPA is not going to solve climate, nor is like the, you know, if there's a new clean power plant plan, that's not going to climate is everywhere, just like environmental justice is everywhere. It's in everything that we do, and it needs to be considered. So what they did is had, um, they wrote papers on a variety of different agencies, um, from the executive office of the president itself to the Office of Management and Budget to the Department of Interior, Department of Energy, Department of Transportation, USDA, et cetera, state. They hit a whole bunch of agencies and basically said, well, here are um, similar to ours, you know, day one, 100 day, you know, first 100 day actions that need to be taken. And all of these agencies need to work together in collaboration. Um, I think, as I mentioned earlier, there's some good signals coming from the Biden-Harris administration that they're serious about this. We saw the announcement of John Kerry as kind of the international climate czar and Gina McCarthy. So Gina McCarthy was the EPA administrator, um, the the second part of the Obama administration. Um, she's an exceptional leader um, and i it was a coup that they got her for sure <laughs> um to do this um she has tremendous sway and this this um, idea that she would be working across all these different federal agencies to address climate is very very powerful um i so, so i think following that signal um that kind of strong inter-federal agency approach um, to climate is key um and and an end to the debate is climate real or not right we just gotta we <laughs> We've moved past that, um, but we just got to do the work. And I think for local communities, because you mentioned that part of climate is definitely mitigation, but it's also resilience and adaptation. You know, we as a we as a global society have waited to the bitter last moment here to make a change on this. And we will, and we have been, and we will continue to feel the implications of climate. And we also need to build all communities, and especially our most vulnerable communities, ability to deal with um, flooding, inclement weather, um, you know, catastrophic events. Um, you know, we need to be ready for that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. We we know that here on Long Island, after Hurricane Sandy, we were really badly right. damaged. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, this is so, so exciting to hear all these initiatives that you're talking about. And um, we really hope that things can can change with the new administration and and move towards a more environmentally friendly frame of mind (laughs) Um, You know, here in New York, we're we're working on electric vehicles and energy efficiency and solar and wind and it will be really helpful to have the support of the federal government. So again, I really appreciate all the work you and your volunteers are doing. It's been wonderful having you on the show. We've been listening to Michelle Roos of the Environmental Protection Network. So would you like to tell us your your website, in addition to climate21.org, all our listeners, be sure to check that out. What is the EPN uh, website?
1: Sure. It's impossibly long. Uh, it's www.environmentalprotectionnetwork.org. Um, and you can see all that information. I would also just like to add, Beth, thank you and on other localities and states that have taken a leadership role during this time. I think the federal government, I, didn't, didn't, I don't think I really mentioned this, can learn a lot from the tremendous progress and leadership that states have taken. Um, so that's a very important piece of the pie. And thank you for that.
0: Sure. Hopefully we're all working together. And here in New York, I know we look towards California quite a bit. Um, So lots of good efforts that have continued to go on over the last four years. So that's that keeps us hopeful. (laughs) So, again, thank you so much. We've been listening to Michelle Roos of the Environmental Protection Network dot org. Make sure to check that out. And that brings us to the end of our podcast. We hope you enjoyed it, learned a lot, and feel inspired to take actions to protect our Earth so we can all protect our health. I want to thank my team, our content producer, Tara Marie Cotliar, content strategist, Rose Chapano, administrative assistant, Logan Straussman, and Jessica Chappelle on social media. You can find the Green Inside and Out podcast on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or other platforms where you listen to your podcast. Please subscribe and give us a review. If you would like to sponsor a podcast, please see our website, greeninsideandout.org, where you can also learn more about the work we do. We rely on and appreciate your support. So until next time, stay green!